Roll tape, Sean. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a special episode of The Minimalists Podcast. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn, and what you're about to hear is a conversation between Ryan and me about criticism. We have people ask us about how do we deal with criticism, and they ask us this all the time. And what I can really tell you is that the more you do, the more good you do, the more you create, the more you put yourself out there, the more you're going to get criticized. And so it's really important to develop these calluses that help you deal with that criticism. We recorded this episode shortly after our podcast on debt aired, which was podcast number 28. And we got a lot of criticism on that. And so we wanted to sit down and have a conversation, but we didn't want it to just be a conversation about that podcast and that criticism. We didn't want it to be a rebuttal to that. And so we sat on this episode for a while so that we could deal with criticism as a whole and get this into our feed for you. Speaking of criticism, we, we've produced something new for you to criticize. If you enjoyed our first TEDx talk, we think you'll enjoy our new TEDx talk, which is called The Art of Letting Go. You can find that over at theminimalists.com or on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash theminimalists. We recorded this out at TEDx Fargo last month. And it was sort of the obverse of our first talk, which was called A Rich Life with Less Stuff. And so the first talk was a lot of Ryan talking and, and me doing some sort of theatrics. And this is the opposite of that, where I talk, did, did much of the talking, but Ryan performed a lot of the, the theatrics behind it. And we talked about minimalism and, and really the benefits behind being willing to let go of, of material things, of status, of identity, of sentimental items just the, the art of letting go. We hope you enjoy that. Feel free to criticize it as much as you like. Also, uh, speaking of criticism, thank you for all the kind words and, and feedback and, and otherwise on our documentary, which is called Minimalism, a Documentary About the Important Things. Uh, people have seen that documentary in more than 100 countries right now, and you can watch it right now if you haven't already over at minimalismfilm.com. That has more than six hours of bonus interviews there. Also, it will soon be available on iTunes and on Amazon. We've heard you loud and clear. We know you want to see it on other platforms other than Vimeo. You can pre-order it right now on iTunes and Amazon. Just type in Minimalism Documentary. That's all for now. I hope you enjoy this conversation that Ryan and I had about criticism. And I think we're live. Well, we're not actually live. We're, we're taped to live. We're live to tape? Yeah, live to tape. We'll go with that. <laughs> but actually, that's not even true because Sean can edit this, right? Oh, yeah. Welcome to the Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And wait. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. I thought maybe I got my name wrong for a second. <laughs> Together, that makes us the minimalists. <laughs> I don't know. For some reason, I thought there was more to the introduction. It's weird when I don't have like the... <laughs> A sheet in front of you. Yeah, we're we're, uh, we're off script today. We're freestyling, we're freestyling today. Uh, Ryan, uh, we were sitting down today, and and he and I were having a, a text conversation yesterday, and I figured we just pull this into the podcast. And uh, our last episode was about debt, and it's one of our most popular ones in terms of great uh, listener feedback and and just great responses and people saying thank you so much. But then there's this other side as well. <laughs> it's so it's so. Ryan, I'll tell you this. It saddens me that that debt has, is such a controversial topic. Yeah, it, it, I, I was pretty shocked. Like, the people who were just defending how great debt can be, like, like uh, it, it saddens me how much people believe in debt, I yeah. guess, is, is what it is. Well, I think we've been sold this meme for so long that you're supposed to be in debt, mm. and and people don't like to hear the absolutes. Like when I say, there's no such thing as good debt. And, and they'll give examples of, you know, this heart surgery I had to have. And it's like, of course. Like I'll, I say... Debt can be a tool. And it can be justified sure. as well. And, and, and so 
I want people to keep in mind when, when we're giving out, when we're talking about these things, this is what works well for us. Mm. And, and we're not being prescriptive about it. If you want to go out and get all that good debt that you want, I feel bad for you because I, I associate that with not having enough freedom. Yeah. Well, and I'll be honest with you, Josh, uh, if we've got a listener out there who can send me the million-dollar portfolio on how they uh, amassed a bunch of wealth from incurring massive amounts of debt, um, I'm open to changing <laughs> and, my mind. Right, S- and, send me and the portfolio. How you do that, and how you can do that regularly. I mean, right. I, I think Donald Trump is the poster child of this, and, and we won't get into politics, and not that you and I would, would necessarily uh, – uh, agree with Donald Trump on just about anything, but but the truth is he he is the master of leveraging debt to to at least be ostensibly wealthy, mm. and and you know, it's debatable as to whether or not he's worth 150 million dollars or 10 billion dollars or somewhere in between, right. depending on the estimates. But he's he is the debt leverager, and 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 that's certainly what he he does. But I I think for the layperson, what we need to do is we need to step back and say. Is this debt justifiable? Is getting a new car uh, uh, and, and, and having a five, six-year, essentially a mortgage on your car, is, is that justifiable? And for me, the answer is always going to be no. And, and, and then, of course, we somehow pissed people off with the, whole, the, the credit score discussion. Oh, you know, yeah. when, when people get frustrated because... You know, I, I will tell you that having a credit score is really having a debt score. And, and a lot of people say, you don't understand. I have to have a credit score because of X, Y, or Z. Mm. And and you know what? If you really feel that you need to improve your credit score, great. I'm going to encourage you not to get into debt to improve your credit score. Keep that in mind. Your credit score is the only way to really build a credit score is to have reoccurring debt. Now you can game the system and you can pay it off regularly and still maintain a credit score. I'm not telling you that having a credit score is a bad thing. Right, right, of course not. What I'm saying is it's not a necessary thing for us either. Right. Even if you go out to purchase a house, it, you can you can get a mortgage that does not require you to have a credit score. They require you to have proof of income. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they're going to require that anyway. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can't go to them and say... Uh, you know, I don't make any money, but I have an 800 FICO score. Can you give me a $300,000 loan for a house? Uh, no. Can, can you prove you can pay for it? No, but my credit is outstanding. Uh, okay. And, and so, Ryan, I, I didn't want to talk today really about, about that. I mean, here's the thing. Realize that, that any of the, the supposed advice that we give out, it's not advice for you specifically. This is a recipe that Ryan and I are sharing from our own lives. Mm-hmm. And what we'd love for you to do is tweeze out ingredients and, and, and hope that they, uh, you're able to create your own recipe to, to, to apply those ingredients to your life so that you can figure out the, the path that's right for you. And the path that's right for me is a debt-free path. Mm-hmm. And we give, we give these tips because we care about people and we don't want you to have to live under that anchor, that weight of all this debt. And believe me, I know about it. I had six figures worth of debt, close to half a million dollars if you count my mortgage in debt. And, and getting free from that is, I mean, it, it opens up all these possibilities. I'm no longer tied to a particular lifestyle. I'm not tied to an income. You don't have to be tied to a geography. You're not tied to to anything financial, and that's beautiful because then everything you do becomes deliberate. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, Ryan, you and I were working in this this corporate career, and we became tied to that lifestyle. Mm. And I had to make you know at least a hundred thousand dollars a year in order to to just pay my bills, basically to keep up on your debt. Yeah, yeah, to keep up with my to keep <laughs> your up, debt payments, right? To keep up with the Joneses because the Joneses had similar debt to me. Right. I mean, you, you remember the neighborhood I used to live in? Yeah. Every house looked identical. It was it was you know Stepford almost, yeah. and, and the the suburban house with with you know, more toilets than people and a full basement, uh, just just full of, of stuff that I wasn't using, but I was paying for. Mm-hmm. I was paying for the space to store it. I had a storage locker on top of that for a brief period of time because, yeah. well, I had already or- fully organized my basement full of stuff and I had to pay for that and now I'm paying to take care of the other stuff I'm not using and so I don't want you to be crippled by debt I don't want you to be confined by your debt and so if you can get out of debt that's really all it is 
And, and today I really wanted to, to move into something. I really want to talk about criticism because we got just a ton. Of, I was shocked by the amount of criticism and people wrote articles about, uh, about it. And um, thankfully, I, did not, I didn't catch that. They wrote articles about the podcast. See, see Ryan does a better job of, 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 of ignoring of, the uh, criticism. Uh, yeah, of just blocking this out altogether. I just and, don't care anymore, is yeah. the thing. Like, I just. And, and look, I, that's what. That's exa- I know. And, and so you and I have done a really good job of building calluses over the last yeah. seven years. Five years ago, I would have like read every bit of criticism uh, and been torn Defended myself by as much as I could. Yeah. Sure. And I, I dipped my toe in the stream this time around and, and responded to some people on, on Twitter. And uh, again, I, I want to point this out. Probably, most of the time, is ninety nine percent of the feedback that we get is outstanding, and then the other one percent is is just glaring, you know, hate and people people throwing uh, uh, rotten tomatoes at us. Yeah, I was just thinking feces, but <laughs> rotten tomatoes as well. Uh, I just feel like sometimes it's like you you when you go to the zoo and you see like a chimpanzee <laughs> just like throwing feces at a wall. Uh, that's that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. And so I want to talk about good criticism and bad criticism today because it's not like uh, we're not allergic to it, but I think most of it is is bad. So let's start with with the bad side of things. Uh, in the corporate world, we used to talk about these the seagulls. And so we have a, an essay from from our book, Essential. And I just wanted to read a, a quick excerpt from that. Uh, this essay is called Seagulls. Criticism is inevitable, unless you do nothing important with your life. But whenever you put yourself out there, whenever you expose your ideas to the world, be it via social media, blogs, or business meetings, you're effectively wearing a sign that says, criticize me. Of course, some criticism is beneficial. Feedback from people respect helps us grow. Other criticism, however, is toxic. The most virulent example is the cynical internet troll. So we're kind of talking about that today, I think. Uh, Trolls are like seagulls. They fly in, shit all over you, and fly away. And they're not informed enough to understand the implications of their own actions. Truth be told, most critics bring nothing to the table. They simply project their own insecurities and add zero value to the conversation. And if we listen to them, their toxicity permeates our thoughts, making it difficult to create anything worthwhile. So you have two choices, either create and be criticized or hide from meaningful work because you're scared of a little bird poop. Personally, I'd rather cover my head and craft something worth criticizing. And, and, and Ryan, I, th- I think that's, that's really what we're doing now is we, we really open ourselves up to the world. We, we have effect, by, by having an audience in front of us, whether when we first started and had 52 people uh, show up to the blog or, or now where it's approaching 5 million people and the podcast is uh, approaching a million people, we, we have a sign here that says criticize me. Mm. And I think the thing is we, we want to delineate between good criticism and, and, and bad criticism here, right. but I... I don't know uh, about you, but for me, I tend to lean on people that I care about and whose opinions I trust. And it's why I'll call and I'll ask you, what do you think about this? Or with Sean, if I'm writing, hey, hey, uh, uh, Sean, can you tell me about, about this sentence? Or do you, think, do you think this story really strikes a chord? And what would you change about this? Because these are opinions that, that I appreciate. And then also when we are publishing a book, we'll, we'll go out to a whole bunch of alpha readers and the beta readers and ask for people who are willing to give us criticism up front, uh, but do so in a, in a meaningful, helpful, articulate way, as opposed to people who just become seagulls and fly over and... and shit on us. So what, what's the last, whether it was re- in regards to the minimalists or your personal life, what's the last good criticism you got? I think I get it from, from you all the time, but, but they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> wait a minute, I criticize you all the time. <laughs> well, no, I, I think so, but, but I ask for it from, from you, and I think, I think that's, that's what's different. Uh, we, you and I talk about stuff all the time, and I think criticism can be as easy as, I would do it this way, but here's why, mm. and that's why it's good. It's not it's the opposite of what bad criticism is. Bad criticism is, I don't like that. That is stupid. You are wrong. I'm so disappointed in your opinion. 
Okay, but that doesn't tell me why it's bad, and, and it's not helpful. Right. So good criticism usually is helpful, and, and, and that comes from when someone's intentions are, are good, and they're not just lashing out. They're not having this, this fake outrage. And, and so uh, that's actually a pretty good segue here. The thing I really wanted to, to read today is one of the things that, that we, have, we have this Internet culture now that we've set up, that has has mimicked outrage for no reason, and it was amazing to me to see people on on Twitter and social media and other places that, who are outraged by the idea that uh, no, there's no such thing as good debt. Uh, people like legitimately got outraged by it, and so I want to read one more quick excerpt from from our book Essential, and this one is about uh, fake outrage. There are times when outrage is an appropriate reaction to current events. The Twin Towers, cheating spouses, and violent crimes. All injustices, all valid reasons for momentary rage. Most of the time, however, our outrage is unwarranted. We shouldn't be offended, but we are. This is especially true when the context of, with, within the context of today's internet culture. Social media has become a breeding ground for armchair criticism, faux discontent, and pra- passive-aggressive, quote, disappointment. A place in which we attempt to, paradoxically, decree our tallest building by ridiculing every nearby structure. Let's break that down real quick, Ryan. So, so I think that's, that's one of the, the big symptoms here, man, is people, uh, in order to, to not feel small, we as people want to criticize other people. You know, it's, it's the old adage of you know, and there's two ways to have a tallest building in town, and, and one is to obviously tear everyone else's building down. Mm. That doesn't give you a taller building. No. It just means you're comparing yourself to everyone else right. as opposed to going out and building a taller building. And it's amazing to me that why people would want to follow what we do and yet criticize it, uh, it without without necessarily trying to help. I mean, I don't understand. Well, it's because we're challenging their their beliefs, right? It's interesting. Or, or their values. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anytime you're challenging someone's values and beliefs, I mean, they're going to have... I know I have a visceral reaction every time my beliefs or values get challenged. Isn't that interesting though? Because maybe we're not—I don't think we're—we are—we're not personally going out trying to challenge no. an individual's beliefs. No. But what you're saying is the idea that's been sparked—they're now challenging their own beliefs, mm-hmm. and that's a good thing, though, right? Because for me, I will listen to—I mean, this is a really, really good example here. When I listen to podcasts, I will try to listen to like Bill Maher, who is very far left, right. and then Glenn Beck, who's very far right. In, in the same sitting, so to speak, or same walking session, because I don't necessarily agree with either of their opinions uh, 100%, but it challenges my beliefs. And you know what? It helps me strengthen the ones I believe in or the ones that are weak. It helps me reformulate them or completely change it all together. I would dare to say, and this is pure speculation, right? But I would dare to say that anyone who reacts viscerally like that towards towards anything we talk about, whether it's debt or... Uh, whether it's stuff or whether it's collections or whatever it may be, uh, I would dare to say that they do not have that approach with life. They don't have that approach of, okay, I'm going to look at all sides. I'm going to consider all sides and I'm going to see how I feel. I am going to challenge my beliefs. I mean, I I know when I was um, uh, being raised Jehovah's Witness, you know, those those beliefs that I had, I just remember... uh, literally, literally, like, making up excuses in my mind to, like, to justify those beliefs. Mm. Uh, Whether it was, um, I remember the first time I, like, did this, I was young, and I asked my dad, I was like, Dad, I don't understand, why doesn't the the Bible talk about dinosaurs? Because, like, I loved dinosaurs. And he was like, well, you know, um, the Bible does talk about monsters of the sea and uh, you know, but, but, you know, my, my, my guess is, is that, you know, Jehovah, uh, put those on, on the earth to, to break up the earth, to help break up the earth. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, <laughs> but as you know, like listen, I'm like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Uh-huh. Put dinosaurs on the earth to break up the earth. So like I would use, I, and I continued to use that, that, uh, anecdotal, <laughs> it's not even anecdotal. It's made up. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 a. <laughs> It's it's you know I use that excuse to 
to to you know really seed and, and root my beliefs and, and a lot of other little things like that and um you know looking back was that was that but was that grasping like it was i need any answer to fill this i don't in. think it was grasping as much as i felt like i had it you know figured out 98 percent of the way and like mm-hmm. there was two percent of the way that like i had to kind of make up these little things for isn't that funny how how as we get, we get older i just turned 35 and and as as we get older, you know, we another adage, you know, other truism is, you know, the 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 more I learn, the less I know, and and I feel that way. And I think it, what's interesting is I know that I don't have all the answers now. In fact, it, it's it, it's funny. I remember growing up, my mom used to always tell me, "You'll you'll." I would ask her something. I just don't understand this. I don't understand that. And it was something that was complex or emotional or spiritual or whatever. And mm-hmm. She goes, just wait until you're 35. <laughs> you'll, you'll understand when you're 35. And I, it, first that pissed me off yeah. because I'm like, I, I want to understand now. Explain it to me. And, and I think what she was saying is you, you need to get enough life experience. And by 35, what you'll understand is that you'll never understand it all. And you'll never have yeah. all the answers. And, and that's the nice thing. And, and we, we, don't, we don't pretend that we, we have all the answers. We have, we have some very good answers to some things that have worked well for us. But generally, that's through first failing at least once, sometimes more than once, and, and being able to learn from, from that, that car crash and walk mm-hmm. away from it. And in some cases, literally from a car crash, like when in, yeah. in 2014 when you almost died in, in that car crash. I mean, learning from, from these crashes and then course correcting thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so much of what I've learned is, is a course correction in, in my own life. And that's really what we, we hope to, to share here. And so I'm totally fine with people criticizing it if it makes sense and if it adds value. And I'm even willing to change my perspective. I think some criticism is good, but getting back to those seagulls and those, and those trolls, uh, it's just it's not productive. And mm-hmm. at first, it can hurt your feelings. But I, the other thing that's nice about it is over time, you know, Ryan and I have been doing this for almost six years now. And you, it's just like when you first start working out like with heavy weights and you start getting those calluses and, man, your fingers hurt. Or when you first start playing guitar and yeah. you, your, your tips of your fingers are bleeding after a while and and, and you realize that, okay, I need to build up these calluses. And I think over time, enough criticism allows you to build up those calluses. It doesn't make it not hurt. It makes it hurt less. Well, it helps me to, it helps me to like, uh, really see the criticism for what it is. Because, you know, if someone walked into a room right now and was like, hey, Ryan, you're fat. <laughs> like, there would be a piece of me that would be like, oh, man, do I, does this, like... Do these shorts make my butt look big, or like is this black T-shirt not flattering? Is this black T-shirt not flattering? And like, and and those things would go go through my head, but but then I would also uh, take a moment and be like, wait a minute, Um, who is this person that's calling me fat, Mm -hmm. and uh, why would they just come in here and say that? Um, At the end of the day, like I can look at that and be like, oh, okay, well, that's not someone I want to be friends with. Right, that's someone who probably has their own bit of insecurity, and they're trying to project something on me. Mm. So, so building up those calluses, it, it, like you said, it's not it's not that it makes it hurt less as much as um, I can look at criticism criticism now and say, oh wow, that person is just having a visceral reaction. Right, uh, I'm sorry that they're having a bad day, or that I have hit a chord with them that has really given them this reaction. But there is nothing valuable in the words that they are saying to me. Um, but it, it, you know, the obverse of that is sometimes people do say stuff and I look at it, I'm like, oh, shit, like they actually have a point. Like, uh, you know, I asked you about the, you know, the, the most useful criticism you've had recently that you can remember. Um, I remember when we we had on the, over the weekend, we had set up a post. Um, it was like right after the Orlando stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was like it was set up before the, the, the Orlando stuff happened. Oh yeah, yeah, and it's and so it was, this was on this was on Facebook. Yeah, it was on Facebook, and it and it said uh, it was something like you know because like you know we uh, we put quotes on Facebook and stuff. Our, our readers know that, and it was the quote: "Most emergencies aren't." Yeah, really I, shitty timing. 
Yeah, but it was it was scheduled. So so uh, we'll, we'll just put that in context. So there's one person who helps out with some of our social media stuff. Her name's uh, Jessica Lynn Williams. She's over at the Mind Palace podcast. You've you've actually heard her do a a guest cast on here with uh, her friend Melissa as well. Uh, but she helps out with uh, she, she's on our team. She helps with, uh, post some social media stuff. So Ryan and I interact a lot with with people on social media. But what she does is she finds interesting articles to to post on our our Facebook and Twitter, and just so that you know, we can share other simple living tips with you. But then she also go, goes, and so we have hundreds of essays at theminimalists.com, and, and also we have three books about intentional living. So she goes and pulls individual quotes once a month from those books and those essays, our, our, our words, and puts them onto our social media feeds to be inspiration for other people. Yeah. And so she'll schedule them a month, month in advance, and so right after the, the Orlando uh, a shooting, uh, the terrorist attack, she she already had this thing scheduled. It was like the day of or the day after. Uh, it was that, that Saturday, actually. And it said, you know, most emergencies aren't. And, and it was pulled from this essay that we wrote that in context, it made a lot of sense of most emergencies aren't. And it's still very true. It's still, yeah. It still holds true the vast majority of the time. But you're right. It was totally bad timing. It was bad timing. And someone on social media was like, what the hell are you doing? Like, yeah. like that's really inappropriate right now right. with the happenings. And... Uh, that that made sense to me. Like that type of criticism, I was like, "Oh, wow!" Like I didn't realize that this is what we had scheduled. Right, and and none of us did because you can't plan for every tragedy. Right, right. right. And in fact, you know, we we've written about that. The other the the other thing that I've got a, a ton of criticism for was an essay right after the Paris attacks. But I think I think it's apropos for uh, just about every uh, tragedy that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and it was called it was called after the tragedy. And um, let me see if I can pull that up real quick. Mm. But 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 I mean, to your point though, it's 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 not an issue when someone has a legitimate concern. Like if I can look at some criticism, even if I mean that particular criticism that I'm talking about um, about that uh, when we posted that quote, most emergencies aren't. Um, they didn't have any like there was no cuss words. There was no there was no one being like super. Oh, the, there were some people I had to block. Oh, it was yeah, that I bad. Mean, well, let's talk about that real quick. I didn't see it. So I, I, we, we both do this all the time, but I'm, I tend to be a bit more liberal with it than others just because if you just want to be a troll, and especially if you have an egg avatar and you're showing up and, and saying stupid stuff or you're cussing at me, I've gotten death threats on social media before. Uh, it was especially after this Paris tragedy thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't mess around with that. Yeah. But if, if someone is just is, is being obscene or rude, I'm, I'm going to block you just, because that is not helpful. Right. And, and so the question that, that I ask is the one I got from, from Dan Harris, and I ask this all the time now. Is this useful? Yeah. And if it, if I can if I can say no, then I need to move on from it. Yeah. I, I, I even the even the obscene comments. I can look through the obscenities and like like literally like I will cut out all the obscenities and look at the the, the actual comment. And I'll st- I can still look at that and be like, this is useful or, or it's not useful. Um, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time the obscenities uh the 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 comments with the obscenities are not useful criticism, but mm-hmm. there are some times where it's like, wow, that could have been said a lot nicer, but yeah, I see where they're coming from. You can have curse words and it sure but, but to me, curse words when used well are not obscene, and I think that that is the perfect example here so after Paris, but I, you could post this after the Orlando attack well, let's talk about this because this is a perfect setup for criticism actually so th- this uh was last year during the, the whole Paris thing, which was, was awful. Uh, but the uh, the essay is, is called After the Tragedy. We'll put it, uh, Sean, if you can put it in the show notes as well. Yesterday, the morning after the horrific terrorist attacks in Paris, I posted the following quote on my personal Instagram account. In light of the Paris tragedy, I'm reminded of J- Anthony Jeselnik's uncomfortable but honest commentary on internet, quote, sadness. To paraphrase Jeselnik, when something horrible happens, everybody runs to social media and writes the exact same thing. My thoughts and prayers are with the victims. Do you know what that's worth? Fucking nothing. Less than nothing. You aren't giving any of your time, your money, or even your compassion. All you're saying is, don't forget about me today. Ergo, let's do something more than post a stock photo of a peace sign on social media. Let's find ways to contribute beyond ourselves. 
And of course, the, this is uh, continuing the essay here. The positive co- comments on this post were numerous, but there were also a spattering of fake outrage, uh, as well as some crude personal attacks and even one potential death threat, which I deleted. Some people missed the point entirely. They, they seem to take my post as a personal assault, as if I was judging them for their social media postings. But of course, I wasn't, because I know better. I understand that, that judgment is but a mirror reflecting the insecurities of the person who's doing the judging. Besides, I don't give a damn about internet trolls' hurt feelings. I'm concerned about the well-being of the victims. And so, rather than judge the comment thread crusaders, I wanted to emphasize that we must do more than exercise our Twitter fingers. A hashtag and a photo alone will not solve the problem, and they can be dangerous because they ape the form of real action. If you want to effectively contribute after the tragedy, here are a few options. Number one, money. If you can afford it, donate to charities that are helping the victims. Even a couple bucks makes a difference. Number two, resources. Our most precious resource, resources are our time and our attention, our influence and our creativity, all of which, when done well, can prove even more beneficial than charitable donations. Here's an idea. Find a handful of friends, coworkers, or members of your community and have a discussion about how you might use these resources to collectively contribute. Not only for this tragedy, tragedy, but for the everyday world around you. You'll be amazed by how much a small group of compassionate people can uncover. Then, whatever you decide, work together to take action. And here's the point here. Ultimately, caring is a verb. Real love and support and understanding means we are concerned enough to express it through our actions. Sure, so sure, social media can be a good first step. As long as it's just that, a first step. Once we've expressed our grief and shown our solidarity, we must then do something about it. Because if we don't, then all we're left with are well-meaning but solipsistic status updates. Mm. And that's what I want to avoid, Ryan. And, 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 so, and of course, people took offense to, to the thing that cleared up the offense here as well. And, and, but the, the good news is, it also encouraged people to take action. And so mm-hmm. we got tons of photos from people who were like, you're right, let's do this. Let me get involved with my community. You know, I live in Kalamazoo, but I can still do something. And in fact, Ryan, so, so you and I, we're in Missoula, Montana right now, but the coffee shop that we started uh, earlier this year in, in St. Petersburg, Florida, we, we did an event there uh, this past uh, week, weekend, uh, for uh, the Pride Parade. And we mm-hmm. donated 100% of the, the proceeds to the Victims Fund uh, 100% of the profits, rather, to the victims' fund there. And, and then next month, Ryan and I are flying down to Orlando with Sean, and we're going to do a charity event in Orlando mm-hmm. uh, with our film, uh, Minimalism, uh, the documentary, and and 100% of those proceeds as well, including the proceeds from our distributor. They're donating to all of the victims from, from this Orlando shooting. So it's good to start talking about this stuff on, on the Internet, on social media, as long as that's a good spark to actually do something about it. Sure. And so it's not just me and you who are doing something. It allows other people to contribute to these victims' funds as well. Mm-hmm. And even if you don't have the money, you have all the other resources I just mentioned. You can get involved with your community. You can use your creativity. What gifts do you have that you can contribute back? You can help the victims uh, of these things as opposed to starting. You can start with social media, but let, let's, let's go beyond that. And this isn't me criticizing an individual. It's mm-hmm. saying, here's what I notice in myself. And I need to be willing to move beyond my keyboard and actually do something good for the world. Right. Yeah, and you know, we're not like, <laughs> this is not an episode to defend ourselves, by the way. Like, we're, you know, we're not bringing up all the criticism and uh, just so we can sit here and say like, oh, all your criticism means nothing. I mean, ultimately, what I would like our listeners to get from this mm-hmm. is don't be scared of criticism. Like, go out, if you if you have something subversive that you want to talk about, then, then talk about it if you feel really, really strongly. I, I think the only time you shouldn't is if you're, if you're not uh, being genuine or you know, if it doesn't align with your values and beliefs. But even for the folks out there who are trying to integrate minimalism into their lives, uh, and you're going to get some criticism for it. But again, it, it, put yourself out there. I mean, if you are following the status quo and 
worrying about what other people think about you and, and really letting that control your life, well, then you're not really living your life. Uh, you're living a life that other people want you to live. Mm. So that, that really reminds me of, of Seth Godin. When he, he, so Seth Godin, my, he's my favorite blogger for sure. He, remember that conference we were at, um, uh, Tara? Uh, she she, <laughs> she w- attended one of Seth's programs, but she got up and, and she was young, maybe 19, 20 years old. It was at Misfit. Uh, oh yeah, she, yeah. She, she 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 made a sign that said Seth Godin is my Beyonce, yeah. and uh, I just loved that because uh, Seth Godin I think is also my Beyonce when it comes to <laughs> blogging. Um, but he he talks about criticism and what you're saying. I, I agree that is the takeaway here. And so here's what he wrote uh, not too long ago. Actually, it was a, a while ago on criticism. Why haven't you launched the thing that you'd like to launch? Fear. Not just the fear of failure. Fear of failure is actually overrated uh, as an excuse. Why? Because if you work for someone, then more often than not, the actual cost of failure is absorbed by the organization, not you. If your product launch fails, they're not going to fire you. The company will make a bit less money and then move on. What people are afraid of isn't failure. It's blame. Criticism. We don't choose to be remarkable because we're worried about criticism. We hesitate to create innovative movies, launch new human resource initiatives, design a menu that makes diners take notice, or give an audacious sermon because we're worried deep down that someone will will hate it and call us on it. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. What a waste of money. Who's responsible for this? Sometimes the criticism doesn't even have to be that obvious. The fear of, quote, I'm surprised you launched this without doing more research is enough to get many people to do a lot more research, to study something to death and then kill it. Hey, at least you didn't get criticized. (laughs) Fear of criticism is a powerful deterrent because the criticism doesn't actually have to occur for the fear to set in. Ooh. That's, that's deep, man. So the criticism doesn't have to occur. You don't even have to get criticized. You just have to have the fear of being criticized mm. to not do something meaningful. Uh, watch a few people get criticized for being innovative, and it's pretty easy to persuade yourself that the very same thing will happen to you if you're not careful. Constructive criticism, of course, is a terrific tool, and that's really the point I want to get to here. Uh, if a critic tells you, quote, I don't like it, or this is disappointing... He's done no good at all. In fact, quite the opposite is true. He used his power to injure without giving you any information to help you do better next time. Worse, he hasn't given those listening any data to make a thoughtful decision on their own. Not only that, but by refusing to reveal the basis for his criticism, he's being a coward because there's no way to challenge his opinion. I admit it. When I get a bad review, my feelings are hurt. After all, it would be nice if a critic said the title of mine was a breakthrough, an inspirational, thoughtful book that explains how everything from politics to wine is marketed through stories. But sometimes they don't, which is just about enough to ruin your day. But this time, it didn't. It didn't because I realized what a badge of honor it is to get a bit of shallow criticism. It means that I confounded expectations, that I didn't deliver the sequel or the simple practical guide that some expected. It means that, in fact, I did something worth remarking on. I think that that's the point, Ryan. I'm not going to read the rest of this essay, Mm -hmm. but if you want to do something remarkable, something Mm -hmm. worth remarking on, then sometimes some of those remarks are going to be criticism. Mm. I'm always saying our, our, our books aren't... I haven't made it until we get those one-star reviews. Now, I don't want a bunch of one-star reviews that are, that are inarticulate, that aren't going to help me out or, or whatever, but the point is that you're going to get those because people are going to remark. And the, the alternative is for us to do something that is unremarkable. You, your average uh, person who works for the IRS, and, unless they're doing something that you know, is changing the way that taxes are collected or something, if you're just filling out forms and... and and, and checking the boxes, you are literally doing something that is unremarkable. Mm. And you might get your peer review once a year or whatever, or your, your, your boss's review, but it's not, it's not something that is going to be remarked on by others. And it's not 
having a, an effect. It's not influencing other people to make changes that that they can make. Wasn't there a uh, New York Times or something where they did a they did a test and essentially um, uh, they found out that people were more scared of being criticized or embarrassed than they were of death. Yes. That stems from the, the studies of public speaking, and the number one fear of public speaking is, of course, criticism, but it's immediate criticism. That's why it's so drastic, right? Mm-hmm. Because you and I can, can get in front of a crowd now after doing it hundreds of times, but I remember when I first started doing public speaking, it was, it was for our stores. So Ryan and I used to work in the retail world, and when I was maybe 22... I was managing two retail stores at the time, and Ryan, you worked at one of those stores. <laughs> and I remember, I used to at the beginning of the month, I'd get up, get up, and I'd give a, a promo pack discussion. Yeah. Right, I'd get both stores together and mm-hmm. and get up in front of the you know dozen or so employees. It, well, they were two small stores, uh, and and I was terrified to speak in front of a dozen people who I knew really well. And and I was one half hour a month. I'd spend so much time prepping, and I was still just stammering and and barely getting through the talk and constantly reading for my notes. But over time, you do that enough, and you build up that muscle. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, you can start small like that. You don't have to get... You don't have to speak in front of 3,000 people. And you, you and I can do that now, and it's not like we don't get butterflies beforehand. We still certainly get butterflies, or at least I know I do. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the same. It's not the same feeling of terror. It's a feeling of excitement. Right. And I'm able to understand that now. Physiologically, they're pretty similar symptoms, you know, terror and, and excitement. Mm-hmm. But I'm able to, to sort of manifest that as as excitement after doing this and knowing what to expect. Because the worst thing that could happen is actually not that bad. You know, the worst thing that could happen in front of 3,000 people, you know, you and I could get up there and, and just start telling lame, you know, uh, 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 Rodney Dangerfield jokes. <laughs> and actually, his jokes are pretty funny. Take my wife, please. <laughs> <laughs> what did he say? He said, uh, he said <laughs> I, need t- I need two women. <laughs> that, that way, that way, when I fall asleep, they have someone to talk to. <laughs> yeah, but we could get up in front, of, in front of tell the a bunch crowd. of lame jokes like that. Yes. Yeah, and and it would go horribly because we're not Rodney Dangerfield. Right. But the worst thing that could happen is that you know people wouldn't like it, and and that I would. The worst thing that would happen is I'd be wasting their time, which would be unfortunate. I, right. I don't want to do that. I would care more about wasting their time than the criticism I would get. <laughs> right, and and really, the the criticism for, would be deserved. The, the main criticism would be sure. you wasted my time. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's really the point here is a, as we're getting criticized, it allows us to build up those calluses to allow us to do things that are actually more remarkable mm-hmm. because the opposite is, not, is a life where you're not alive at all. Mm. And so it's accepting and in many ways appreciating the criticism for what it is, even the shitty criticism where it's, you know what? I didn't like this. This sucked. I was disappointed, which is... Actually, let me get back to this. So so before we close out here, I want to finish that fake outrage essay here because it talks about, about that. And so we, here, we, here we sit, glued to our keyboards and glowing terminals, stewing in a disturbing mixture of anger and schadenfreude as we scroll through the endless stream, waiting for the next politically incorrect gaffe to ignite our flame of fake ind- indignation. Rarely is a meaningful discussion even attempted. Just take one look at the comments at any popular YouTube video. That, I mean, that's... That, that's your prime example there. Yeah. You, you go to a, a YouTube video. I, I mean, our TED Talk has close to a couple million views. I, there's no way no. I'm going to go look at those No, those I comments. did. I did the other day. Yeah, it was just oh, like... Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't even want to hear about it. Because here's the thing. <laughs> it's that, horrible. That, that is a sea of trolls that is unproductive. Mm-hmm. And so seek out the productive ones, but also appreciate the other ones that are there because it means what you're doing is being remarked upon. Within recent years, the outrage has amped up considerably, making room for endless commentary on banal pop culture happenings. The, pe- the perils of Deflategate, a formal Olympian's new pronoun, Anthony Weiner's Weiner. <laughs> Not to mention a dozen new presidential candidates who have entered a race in which the main qualification seems to be outrage for whatever is said by their opponents, all of which have uh, incited tantrums from both sides of each, quote, issue. But who gives a damn? Well, sadly... The answers seem to be everybody gives a damn. 
because everyone has the tools to be an amateur critic now. There are scores of trolls waiting to disgorge their opposing viewpoint. Even your authors here, the minimalists, aren't immune to the wrath of the fuming masses. A topic as seemingly innocuous as minimalism, or, or in this case, innocuous as debt. I mean, you can't get more innocuous than that, mm-hmm. I don't think. Uh, as minimalism or debt, somehow infuriates hundreds, if not thousands, of noisy keyboard mercenaries. Without good reason, the self-righteous are offended by that which doesn't really affect them. And because they've decided that someone else's lifestyle is somehow an affront to their own, that's exactly what you were talking about a moment ago, Ryan, they reflexively spout their gibberish in an attempt to justify a viewpoint that nobody asked them to justify in the first place. We've all done this at some point, and that's really why I wanted to talk about this today, right? We're all critics. We're, yeah. all, we're all responsible for this. So when I criticize now, I want to make sure it's constructive. And so whether that's a leaving a review on Yelp or on Google or if it's giving feedback to someone, mm-hmm. even if it's a one-star review, it needs to be constructive. And if it's five-star review, if, if I have an amazing experience, I'm going to go out of my way not to just say, hey, that was great, because that's not constructive either. Mm-mm. Tell them why it's great. Why did it resonate with me? And, and that's really important for me to do. So we've all done this at some point. We've all gotten offended without asking ourselves why and then used our fake outrage to cast judgment upon others. We do this. We, we judge people because it helps us feel better. And pretending to be offended is much easier than attempting to breach the walls of introspection. Mm. Man, sometimes I read something like this. And I go back to something. Like, I need to take my own advice sometimes. Like, <laughs> yeah. like let's breach the walls of introspection instead of instead of reacting on on impulse. But this good feeling is fleeting, of course, and so we judge more and more in an attempt to give grounds for our initial judgment. All the while increasing our dosage of outrage, it's an ugly downward spiral. And from a spectator's distance, standing far from the backlog of comments and posts and at replies, the enraged look like fools. Because when we step away and observe, we soon realize that this kind of judgment says more about the judge than the judged. After all, judgment is just a mirror reflecting the insecurities of the person who's doing the judging. True, we all judge, but it is best to do so with reason, respect, and empathy, rather than rage, resentment, and disdain that have suffused our everyday lives. But the truth is that for the vast majority of us, most outrage-inducing events are are irrelevant. And thus, outrage itself is a waste of time. Few people are affected by deflated footballs or transgender celebrities. And yet we act as if these events directly shape our lives. We judge, we throw in our unsolicited two cents, and then feel a particular kind of emptiness when the dust clears and all that remains is a heap of hurt feelings. Allowing others to offend is natural. It's a default setting, but it is also unnecessary. An offended man or woman is a defenseless man or woman. Mm. But it, also, but it doesn't have to be this way, at least not on an individual level. We can choose not to be offended. Mm. So stop it. Let it go. Change the channel. Turn it off. Unsubscribe. Unfriend. Unfollow. Mute. Block. Walk away. Breathe. Outrage is a fool's errand. And unless you're a fool, you needn't carry the weight of another person's burdens. Let the fools do their own heavy lifting. Perhaps what we need is a reduced dose of outrage and a higher dosage of letting go. You see, letting go of outrage is not the same as, embark- is, is embra- as embracing apathy. Outrage and apathy are obverse signs of the same, sides of the same coin. By refusing to be offended by life's minutia, we refuse to step into outrage's blast radius, and thus we refuse to cast judgment arbitrarily. Ultimately, avoiding the outrage is how we can approach controversial and interesting topics with honest, worthwhile discussions. Even when an occasion warrants outrage, such as murder or racism or Game 6 of the 1998 NBA Finals. Great game. No, it was not a great game. (laughs) The game ruined my life. (laughs) 
<laughs> what we do with our with our ire is a different story. Just because our emotions are justified, that doesn't mean we're required to acquiesce. Rarely does acting out of rage, justified or not, lead to a desirable outcome. Besides, the only person who has the right to worry about deflating Tom Brady's balls is Janelle Bunchen. And if that joke offends you, then please go back to the top and read this essay again. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, Ryan, I know we, we, we're in a conference room right now, and we need to give this up in a minute. Um, any last words on, on, on criticism you want to talk about? Um, yeah, I would just say uh, for anyone listening, keep, you know, if you want to criticize this, keep it coming. Uh, just try to make it useful and not, not so visceral. Um, and if it, you know, our, our whole goal here is to add value to everyone's lives. It is, it is not to listen to ourselves pontificate. It's not so we can feel like we're some kind of you know, minimalist gurus. Oh. Uh, this, is, this is literally for you, uh, to help you. If it's not helping you, then turn us off. You have the option of doing that. Yeah, and I would encourage you to turn off anything that, that is not broadening your, your horizon, isn't, isn't helping you either change your beliefs or strengthen your beliefs as well. So, so whether that's us or blogs you follow or podcasts you follow or, or whatever else it, it, it may be, movies you watch, however you spend your time, it should help you grow. And ideally, hopefully we're helping you grow. I think the cool thing is you don't have to agree with us 100% of the time either. Mm-hmm. We don't even agree with us 100% of the time. And Ryan and I, even when we agree, we tend to approach an agreement from a different side of it. And, and we help each other get there. And so... so Encourage. I encourage you to help yourself get there as well by by listening, by reading, by by doing the work and doing the introspection necessary. And part of that will actually be listening to criticism and then doing something worth criticizing. You know, it's crazy, man. I feel so strongly about what what we do. Like, I have never, I just have never lived a life that has been so much in alignment with my values and beliefs. Like, I I, I feel so good about what we do mm-hmm. if literally it was the obverse where we got 99 percent visceral crappy feedback and just that one person was like dude you changed my life yeah like thank you so much for uh your perspective it really helped me with my perspective and it, it would be worth it for me yeah yeah you know it's well thankfully it's not that right now but yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not saying i want it to be that way right and and i think that's the other thing too we don't we don't do things to just uh, try to to uh, get people outraged on purpose. You know, no. we're not out here being you know, shock jocks or whatever. Mm-hmm. We genu- genuinely want to add value to other people's lives, and whether that's helping them with their clutter or their their financial clutter, which is debt or anything else, we just we just want to provide you with that recipe. Take some ingredients out of it and and go from there. Uh, before we close out, uh, we've got a couple things. We're going to be in in Fargo, North Dakota, on July nineteenth. And then we're going to be in Orlando. We have a special charity event down there on August, uh, I think it's the 11th. You can find both of those dates on our tour page over at uh, theminimalists.com slash tour. And, of course, our documentary comes out on August 2nd, finally. Woo. Yeah, it's uh, in theaters in Canada and Australia right now. But then the, the documentary comes out August 2nd. It's going to be on a whole bunch of different platforms. You can pre-order it right now, though, if you just go to minimalismfilm.com. You can get all the details for that. If you pre-order it over there on Vimeo, you actually get six hours of bonus interviews and content as well. And uh, Sean, if you can throw in maybe some, we'll put some uh, voicemails in here, some tips and tricks from from some of our, our listeners. We'll add them in here right now. Hi, guys. My name's Amanda. I'm from Revelstoke, Canada, and I have a suggestion regarding how to get out of student debt because I was able to get out of over $35,000 in student debt in under a year. And I wanted to share how I did it. So it's kind of a crazy idea. Basically, I did it by working through university and also afterwards for a few years by getting paid to travel the world. And specifically what I did was work on cruise ships. And during university, I worked as youth activity staff during every university break possible. So all summer, all Christmas break, all spring break. So that's what I did all throughout my university years. And then the year after I got out of uni, when I had the $35,000 worth of student loans, when I finished my program, I actually went on board full-time. I got promoted to an onboard crew training position. And in that first year of full-time employment, I was able to pay off my full $35,000 in student loans. So that was just really, really cool. So not only did I get to do 
you know, work my way through and help save for my university while I was working on board, I was able to pay off any remaining debt ex right after. And I did that for another, after my first full-time year, I did cruise ships for another three or four years, so 10 years in total. And yeah, so some other examples might be outside of cruise ships might be teaching English in Asia or working at resorts during uni breaks or even after university as well. But finding a way to work a cool job, get paid to travel perhaps, but finding a job that's going to pay for accommodation, groceries, flights, so that all of the money that you're making, you're actually saving and able to be putting towards your debt. So I hope this little tip helps people and uh, thanks so much for all you do. Hi guys, uh, my name is Rachel. I'm from Lyle, Illinois, and uh, I've been a long-time listener of you guys ever since your podcast started. Um, I think I've listened to all your episodes. Maybe I'm missing a couple, um, but uh, I was just listening to the one about travel, and um, the the question again came up. Uh, you know, does this um, add value into my life, and can I afford this? Um, and I, I just had a thought about the question, can I afford this, that I, I kind of wanted to add into the mix. So so you guys have talked about, you know, can I afford this monetarily? Um, can I afford it to take up space in my in my life or in my house? And I was also thinking, can I afford the anxiety or, like, the feeling of guilt that might come along with purchasing something or spending money on something that, somewhere inside me I know doesn't really align with my values. Um, and I thought of this after the, the other person who called in um, about their compulsive travel um, costs. And so maybe a question that, that he could ask himself, um, he knows he loves travel, that in itself is not a bad thing, but he could ask himself, can I afford how I feel like that twinge of, you know, not being happy with myself? that kind of goes into the mix of how much he enjoys travel. Because if he can wait and and save up the money or, or, or you know, make more informed decisions about which trips he wants to go on, then they'll be, like, 100% enjoyable instead of having some percentage of, of having that little twinge of guilt or anxiety or that kind of negative feeling associated with, with putting himself into debt. Hi, my name is Shasha, and I am from the San Francisco Bay Area, and I just had a comment regarding consumerism and really just purchasing things, changing your mindset when it comes to items and consumerism. I know once I had kind of made the shift when it comes to wanting to go out and buy things, um, I had also struggled with the the second part of that is once I did buy something I needed I kind of felt that heart racing, you know, satisfaction, even though I'd worked on one part of keeping myself from wanting all these things to go and buy. Once I went and bought things I actually needed, I couldn't really control that feeling of, yeah, yeah, I got this. I need to open it right this second. I need it. I need it. I'm so excited. And I, I that wasn't a healthy feeling to have this rush of adrenaline just because I bought something. So something that I've, been doing recently to try to combat that and to work through that is even when I buy something that I say I need, I will not let myself pull it out of the bag for a certain amount of time. So for example, I just bought a new dress, a black dress, and I bought it intentionally because it was good quality and I knew that it would be very um, diverse and I could use it for a lot of different things. And I was so excited about this black dress and I got this adrenaline rush and I felt good because I knew that it was something I actually needed but it was also an unhealthy excitement. So I kept it in the bag for a week, and I didn't let myself pull it out because I needed to give myself time to recognize that this is not bringing me true satisfaction. This isn't bringing me true adrenaline and excitement. Yes, I bought it, and I have it, and I wanted to be able to get to that place where, okay, I've satisfied the need, but I also am not letting it be the, the full satisfaction towards want, if that makes sense. And so um, that's just one little tip that I've been using to kind of combat those unhealthy, you know, systems that we've created in our brain to want and need and consume. So, yeah, the tail end even working on that rather than just that front end of finding all the things that you want to need before you go and buy them, but also that tail end of once I buy this, not letting it become 
this overwhelming adrenaline rush. All right, y'all, that's it for this episode. If uh, you leave here with one message, of course, we hope it's this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have you gotta reach for and you gotta grab oh i bet that you'll be fine without it so tear your eyes away or tear